Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Kelly Cobb. I'm the Senior Director of External Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, and uh, we appreciate you joining us uh, on this conversation about the economics of immigration reform. Um, we've all heard that line, they took our jobs. Uh, it was popularized for me in the show South Park. Um, but it's an idea in, um, that's rooted in rhetoric surrounding immigration reform and the economics of immigration. Uh, and along those lines, you also hear uh, things like, they took our welfare, which is another line um, that some conservatives tend to say. Uh, but to a large degree, this is kind of a false narrative. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's become the way that Americans think about economics uh, when they think about immigration reform. Uh, the reality is something a little bit different. Um, and our panel here is uh, really meant to talk about how immigrants expand the size of the economic pie in this country. They are entrepreneurial. They tend to start a lot of businesses at a disproportionate rate compared to native-born Americans. Uh, they pay taxes, contrary to popular belief, and they actually take less in welfare benefits than native-born Americans do. Um, part of the reason the 2007 immigration reform effort ended up failing was probably because of a lot of this misperception about immigration and the economics of it, uh, particularly surrounding the guest worker program. But we're seeing signs in this Congress uh, that people are better understanding the economics of immigration reform and beginning to embrace it in a much better way. Um, Rand Paul earlier, uh, Senator Paul earlier this week came out and he said, if you wish to live and work in America, then we will find a place for you. Uh, Senator Rubio, I read this morning, said a lot is going to hinge on the guest worker program. There are elements of organized labor that don't want one. But he went on to say that we need one to ensure the future, ensure that in the future, if we need foreign labor, we're able to access it in a legal way. Um, so these kind of suggest that, that in the immigration debate and those that are very involved in the immigration debate, um, that a market-oriented approach is really common, kind of becoming the consensus and figuring out a way to create uh, the most free market approach to immigration that we can. And so that's really what we want to talk about on this panel today uh, in the economics of immigration reform. Um, we're joined by four panelists. Um, first, uh, to, to my left, your immediate right, is Shika Dalmia, who's a senior policy analyst at the Reason Foundation. She writes for Reason Magazine, Bloomberg View, and uh, Washington Examiner, but has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, and other major outlets, uh, work that earned her the first 2009 Bastiat Prize for online journalism, which is pretty impressive. But um, most importantly to me, she is an award-winning editorial writer for my hometown paper, The Detroit News, uh, where she covers numerous issues, including immigration. Um, Next to her is Stuart Anderson, who's the executive director of the National Foundation for American Policy. Uh, from 2001 to 2003, served as, this is quite a lengthy title here, executive associate commissioner for policy and planning and counselor to the commissioner at the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Uh, before that, he worked for four years on the Senate uh, Subcommittee on Immigration, including a staff director under Senator Sam Brownback. Uh, but most importantly, before that, he was the Cato Institute's Director of Trade and Immigration Studies. Uh, he, too, has been published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, amongst others. And he is the author of the book, Immigration, uh, simple title, which came out in 2010. Uh, and beside him is John Tyler, who is uh, the General Counsel, Secretary, and Chief Ethics Officer at the Kaufman Foundation. 
He's authored and, and presented on numerous topics pertaining to entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, which is what he wants to focus on here today, talking about how immigration, uh, how immigrants uh, disproportionately do start businesses in this country. Uh, he's also affiliated with numerous other organizations, both in leadership roles and as a presenter, including the Alliance for Charitable Reform, Philanthropy Roundtable, the Association of Small Foundations, amongst others. Prior to joining Kaufman Foundation, he was a partner at uh, Lathrop Engage in Kansas City, where he focused on commercial litigation and employment law. And finally, uh, on the far side over here is Alex Narasta, who is Cato Institute's immigration policy analyst. Prior to joining Cato, he handled immigration at uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He too has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Huffington Post, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, uh, as well as appearing in numerous uh, TV uh, and radio spots around the country. So please join me in welcoming our panel, and uh, we'll start things off uh, with uh, Shika. Good afternoon. Um, Kyle actually has given away everything I was going to say, so I think I should just sit down. Um, but... Um, you know, uh, since I have 20 minutes to fill, I'm going to have to just bore you here. But, you know, those of us who've been following immigration, the immigration debate for, uh, for a while, have noticed that there's a sea change uh, in the conversation about high-skilled immigrants. They used to be the devils who were coming to America and stealing high-paying American jobs. But now, virtually, there is no disagreement outside a very narrow band of restrictionists that you know, high-tech foreigners are really good for the economy, they are good for dynamism, they are good for giving America the competitive edge it needs in a global economy to stay ahead. The controversy now is about low-skilled immigrants and their impact on the economy, which is why Alex has invited a reason analyst to address that aspect of it. Um, the general perception is that allowing low-skilled immigrants is tantamount to importing poverty from the third world. They screw Americans coming and going. They work too hard and they steal American jobs, and they also don't work hard enough and steal American welfare. <laughs> but I'm actually going to argue that low-skilled immigrants are as vital to the American economy as high-skilled immigrants, and, and some of the reform proposals that are being bandied around this building uh, that want to privilege high-skilled workers over low-skilled workers are really quite wrong-headed. American employers, regardless of whether it is Macintosh computers or Macintosh apples, should be able to decide for themselves what kind of immigrants that, they, that will best suit their purposes. Um, the whole high-skilled, low-skilled distinction in itself is quite artificial. And to give you an example, in Canada, their welding jobs and plumbing jobs are regarded as high-skilled jobs for immigration purposes, and they are treated the same as doctors and, you know, what have you. And that's because their labor market needs those people. The reality is that the labor market is a symbiotic system where every class of worker needs every other. And you take away one, and it makes it very hard for everyone else to function. So I think it's really important that we understand the vital role that low-skilled immigrants play in, this, uh, in our labor market. And let me give you a personal example to sort of illustrate uh, you know, some of the academic literature that covers this area. Uh, you know, I have a, as Kyle said, I live in Michigan, and uh, my husband and I constructed our, you know, like we got our own house built, and we have a lo rather large yard. 
And Michigan is, you know, it's full of, especially where we live, there are pests, there are, you know, all kinds of uh, natural things that we have to deal with. Um, and I was trying to keep up with the yard work in this larger, you know, rather large yard that I have. And I was, it became very clear to me that it wasn't something I could really do. I could either do my job or I could do yard work. I really couldn't do both, uh, and especially, you know, not with the kind of back issues I have. So my husband and I started looking for a yard, uh, you know, yard maintenance service, and they are very expensive in Michigan for a whole lot of reasons. Finally, we found one that we could afford, and it was actually run by an Iraqi Chaldean uh, immigrant. Um, and why was it that uh, uh, this Chaldean guy, let's call him Jacob, why could he offer us a better price? And the reason was that somehow in Michigan, he had managed to find cheap Mexican labor, which is really not easy. I mean, in California and Arizona, it is, but not in Michigan. Uh, but over a period of time, and now we've had Jacob for you know, many years, over a period of time, we've watched Jacob's business expand from home to commercial landscaping. And, uh, but his uh, Mexican yard workers with their you know, very meager English-speaking skills are really not able to communicate with their bus his business clients. So what has he done? He's hired a whole cadre of native-born uh, American kids, barely out of high school, to oversee. All they have to do is go with the Mexican workers. You know, they are sort of a team, five Mexican workers, one American kid, five, you know, and they, he has about six or seven of those. And all these American kids have to do is oversee the Mexican labor and talk to the client when the need arises. And yet, they get better wages than any of the Mexican workers do, or if they, or if they had been doing the job that uh, you know, these workers do, which is essentially pulling weeds and you know, trimming bushes and what have you. Now, if Jacob couldn't hire this cheap Mexican labor, it wouldn't mean that he would just pay more for American labor, as many restrictionists insist. It would mean that his business wouldn't get off the ground, because he couldn't offer his service at a price that I could afford. So if I didn't have Jacob, I would either have to give up on my yard work, or I would have to go forego my other work, my writing and you know, my uh, research um, analysis which is where my real comparative advantage is. Um, and the upshot would have been that there would have been a net attrition in economic activity or productivity losses for me. So there are five broad lessons of my you know, little story, and each one of them is actually you know, quite, there's a lot of evidence in ac academic literature for each of those lessons. One, which is the most obvious one is, and that nobody disputes, is that most Americans, like me, are not competitors of uh, these foreign workers. They are actually customers of low-skilled immigrants. So immigrant presence increases our real wages, and it, uh, by lowering the prices of the goods and services that these people offer. They leave more money in our pocket to either spend elsewhere in the economy, create jobs elsewhere, or um, you know, perhaps save for a better, for a, for a future. Um, the, the second lesson is that their presence means not fewer jobs for Americans. It actually means that because more businesses can form, uh, because they, you know, these immigrants lower the cost of a key input of business, which is labor, more businesses form, and therefore there are more jobs for everyone to go, go around. In growing market economies, you know, jobs are really not a zero-sum game. 
It is no surprise that in Arizona, after the crackdown on undocumented aliens, there weren't more jobs for native-born Americans. There were actually fewer jobs in construction and agriculture, and Alex has done a wonderful study to actually show that. Um, and in, in fact, after the crackdown on unauthorized aliens in Arizona, uh, the job losses there uh, for native-born were actually far greater than some of the neighboring states, uh, New, New Mexico and California. The other thing with low-skilled immigrants is that they very closely track labor market logic so that these immigrants who come over here are not ones whose skills actually compete with those of native workers. They actually complement those of native workers. <coughs> In economic parlance, we say that immigrants and natives are not substitutes. Um, and there is, you know, lots of literature, very good, there are very good academic studies which actually prove that. The only economist who has found that there's a significant displa displacement of natives by low-skilled immigrants in America is a Harvard economist called George Borjas. But I won't go into all the details of, you know, how he found that, but just one quick point. There was a meta-analysis that uh, Professors Sari and William Kerr did some time back, and they looked at all the studies out there, both in the United States and abroad, that studied this question about the impact on uh, the wages of low-skilled Americans. And... Um, or the jobs of low-skilled Americans. And they basically found that Borjas was the only one who had found any displacement, and the reason was he just assumed far greater substitutability between the two, the two kinds of workers. And their conclusion was the large majority of studies suggest that immigration does not exert negative effects on the, labor, on the native labor market outcomes. Even large sudden influxes of immigrants, such as in the you know, Mariel Boat incidents in 1980 when Castro released about 200,000 convicts from his prisons and uh, you know, released them into Florida. Even after that incident, um, they did not actually, native wages did not go down significantly. Or native, and native employment, I'm sorry, did not go down significantly. Um, and then the next point is that not only do immigrants not threaten American jobs, they actually don't threaten American wages either. And that's, and the reason is this somewhat subtle point, the reason is that they increase the skill diversity in the labor market. And they push Americans into jobs that are less grueling and therefore better paying. For example, just the very fact that you have more Spanish-speaking immigrants in the country means that relatively English-speaking skills become scarcer. And if those scarce skills become scarcer, they start commanding a better price than if everybody just spoke English, because then English would not be something that distinguished you from you know, your other workers. So when there is a large immigrant presence, the basic knowledge about how the system works, basic acculturation suddenly starts commanding a premium in the labor market in a way that if we had a completely homogeneous market, we wouldn't have had. Um, and uh, again, there's plenty of corroboration in uh, you know, academic literature. Again, and the only economist who has actually found a downward effect on native wages is George Borjas. Uh, but even his evidence is actually quite weak. In uh, 2003, he wrote a paper very gloomily titled The Labor Demand Curve is Downward Sloping. And what Borjas did was he disaggregated the impact of low-skilled immigration on different native groups because, you know, not everybody is affected by the presence of low-skilled immigrants. Some people are affected more than others. So the point is not to compare averages, but to actually compare apples to apples. And so it was a good, you know, it was a good study. And what he found that uh, was that as uh, that um, 
that there was a net negative impact on American wages overall. Low-skilled immigrants also had a negative impact on every cohort of American. However, that was only in the short run. In the long run, he found that the overall impact was actually zero. And what's more, that only one group, and that was high school dropouts, felt any noticeable no uh, negative impact in the long run. For almost every uh, other cohort that he studied, college graduates, uh, non, you know, people with some high school graduates, college graduates, the effect was either positive or it was negligible. So overall impact was positive. Um, the impact on every cohort was positive. The only people who sort of lost out under his, under his uh, calculation were high school dropouts, native high school dropouts. But subsequent studies have actually failed to even corroborate this negative effect. So there was a study done by Giovanni Perry and uh, Ottaviano and using very similar methodology to Borhaus, and they found that there, was, uh, that there was a short-term negative impact on the wages of high school dropouts of 0.7%, but the long-run effect on the native dropout wages was actually a positive 0.3%. So in other words, no one, not even high school dropouts, lose, in, lose out in the long run to immigration. Essentially, you know, and again, it's a little important to understand why um, uh, you know, nobody loses out. And the reason is that... Um, a, there is, you know, these two workers are not exactly substitutable. They have different skills, and they have therefore reached out to different mar labor markets. Even more crucially, Borhaus had made this Malthusian assumption that capital wouldn't increase if the labor, if the productivity of labor increases. He assumed that the capital would remain the same in the economy, and if you divide the same amount of capital among a lot of different workers, then everybody's wages goes down. But that actually is not what happens. When you have uh, businesses that are making money, essentially there's capital formation, and if the capital formation increases, then there is more money for everybody to go around. And so what Borhas had done was he hadn't sufficiently accounted for the increase in capital formation, and so therefore he found this, uh, you know, this drop in wages. Whereas other studies that have made better assumptions about capital formation did not find that find that impact. Uh, the fourth reason that these immigrants are actually good uh, for uh, for the economy is that you know they don't have long-standing community ties and they don't have geographic attachments. They don't have homes that they need to sell. And so they are much, much more mobile than the native-born forces. They can quickly relocate to wherever they are needed. Hence, they're, so, you know, so they might be hanging drywall in Michigan you know, in the winter and then going to Florida in the summer to pick fruit. They, you know, they can very quickly go wherever their skills are most needed. And hence, they add to the resilience and dynamism of the American economy. Even Borjas had to admit in a paper that actually he titled because of the results that he found that these immigrants grease the wheels of the American economy. And the fifth reason that low-skilled immigrants are actually good for the economy is that they actually increase the supply of a certain kind of high-skilled immigrants, and the, or I'm sorry, high-skilled workers. And these workers are called women. Um, many professional women would be forced to spend much more time taking care of their children, doing laundry, cooking, or you know, what have you, or they would be forcing their husbands to do that. If they couldn't hire foreign nannies, go to Korean dry cleaning services, or you know, get Chinese takeout. 
uh, Pat uh, Boston University's Patricia Cotes has found that in metro areas where there is a large presence of low-skilled immigrants, not only do women work more hours, but more women work, professional women work. Their odds that they will spend 50, 60 hours every year uh, you know, in, on their jobs uh, increase significantly in markets where there is a high, you know, an enormous low-skilled presence. So this caused uh, Gordon Hansen of UCLA to conclude, low-skilled immigrants thus indirectly contribute to productivity growth by raising the effective supply of high-skilled labor. So which is, you know, the reason why we can't just be fixated on high-skilled immigrants in our current immigration reform. So in summary, more, more, the more relaxed immigration policies are a win for the immigrants who you know, escape poverty and improve their lives. They are a win for native consumers of immigrant services whose real wages go up. And they are a win for native workers who experience productivity gains and whose natural skills command more of a comparative advantage. But let me just address one powerful objection that immigration opponents make to open, you know, to letting more low-skilled workers in. And that is the objection of the welfare state. They say that it's all well and good to allow a lot of low-skilled poor people in, in the absence of a welfare state, but in the presence of a welfare state, what happens is that these immigrants don't come here and earn their full keep. The welfare state, essentially, it privatizes the benefits of immigrants to employers, but it socializes the costs to everybody else. And you know that's a good point, and so we need to think about that. Um, as, but, you know, as if you look at the evidence, as it turns out, that uh, this objection, too, is overstated. In fact, there is even evidence that it, it's, it could be just flat out false. Um, and I have a long discussion of it in a paper I did for Reason Foundation, and you can go and check that out. But I'll very quickly give you some highlights over here. You know, there would be reason to worry that uh, letting these people in would be bad for the country if we thought they were coming here to live off welfare. But there is actually no evidence. They come here for jobs, not welfare. And uh, one way we know that is that because their labor participation rates are extremely high. Uh, the labor participation rates of foreign men on the whole are 80%, which is 10 points higher than native men. And the labor participation rate of unauthorized, unskilled men is actually 94%. And more to the point, these immigrants, they, go to they, they actually tend to flock to states which have low social spending, not high social spending, which would be the opposite of what we would expect if they were coming here for welfare. Between 2000 and 2009, the 10 states with the largest percentage increase in foreign-born population spent far less on public uh, assistance per capita than the 10 states with the slowest growing foreign-born population. Now, of course, that doesn't mean just because immigrants are not coming here for welfare doesn't mean that they don't end up using more welfare than they are actually uh, you know, paying in taxes. So we still have to think about the fiscal impact of immigration. And, uh, you know, and here the academic literature is actually a little less clear than it was on all the other points I mentioned, but still I think there are some conclusions that you know, I think are pretty reasonable to make. There was a National Research Council study which was done in 1996 which found that low-skilled immigrants had uh, over a course of you know, their and their descendants' life, they had a negative fiscal impact of $13,000. That's it, $13,000 over the course of their you know, existence. Uh, and that was before the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. 
Now, you know, and that Welfare Reform Act, if you all remember, it actually barred immigrants, whether they are legal or illegal, high-skilled or low-skilled, from receiving any means-tested benefits. So these immigrants, you know, if you have a green card for five years, then you can apply for some of these benefits, but before that, you, you can't. Uh, so they are not entitled to, you know, any food stamps. They are not entitled to any um, uh, health care, full health care benefits. They are not entitled to any kind of social security, disability, money, none of that. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly. But um, actually, a very a recent study that, uh, you know, uh, the George Washington professors Leighton Koo and Brian Bruin did just actually about a month ago, they found that... Um, they looked at the consumption of just federally means-tested benefits of low-skilled immigrants who do qualify for these benefits, and some of them who don't, with native-born Americans. And they actually found that not only do these immigrants use less welfare benefits, but the value of the welfare benefits they get are actually lower. And what was really interesting about this uh, study was this even applied to the U.S.-born children of these immigrants, of low-skilled immigrants. So the American children of these low-skilled immigrants actually used fewer welfare benefits and a lower value of these benefits. Um, but, you know, but setting all that aside, you know, what they consume in welfare and what they pay in taxes, I think the one thing which is pretty solidly uh, rooted in literature is that even if you assume that these immigrants have fiscal costs, their economic contributions are so great that they actually dwarf these costs. And I'll give you just two quick studies that looked into this. One was by the Texas uh, Comptroller in 2006, and they found that although low-skilled immigrants, they imposed a $504 million uh, burden on, uh, you know, on state coffers. But they without their presence, the state economy would have shrunk by 2.1% and caused a loss of about $17.7 billion. And uh, there was a similar study done by the University of North Carolina around the same time, which produced a very similar finding that these immigrants, they have like a 61 million net cost on the state budget, but they actually contribute $9 billion to the state economy. So I think any way you look at it, you know, they more than uh, pay for themselves. So just in conclusion, you know, America is a country that was built by the blood, sweat, and tears of low-skilled immigrants, whether they were Irishmen escaping the potato famine to clean American streets in 1850, or Italian workers who came to chisel rock in American quarries to build roads in 1910, or poor Latinos who are hanging our drywall now and giving us cheap <laughs> homes. So it is time that we recognize their contributions and welcome them with open arms, just as we are perhaps going to do with high-skilled immigrants. Thank you. Thank you, Shika. And um, I'm going to talk briefly about high-skill immigration. And I believe Shika is correct that there is more consensus on at least part of the high-skill immigration agenda. And that's when it becomes, uh, comes to, to green cards. And I'm going to explain briefly sort of what the current problems are. As, as, uh, as Sheikha uh, talked about, on the low-skill immigration and illegal immigration, uh, Congress really hasn't quite gotten it right yet. Um, 
And you're probably thinking, well, that's because they spent all their time really trying to make sure high-skill immigration policy was really perfect and correct. Well, you know, actually, that's not the case at all. Um, and I can give you a statistic that'll uh, help explain that. Uh, right now, you have a quota, an overall quota on employment-based immigrants of about 140,000 uh, for green cards. And then within that, there's a per-country limit. And it affects negatively people from larger countries like India and China. And to give you an example that if you're from India today and you apply for a green card uh, and the employment-based third preference, the most common preference, you could expect to wait potentially up to 70 years, seven zero years. Uh, and that's because, uh, based on analysis we did in 2011, that there's over 200,000 people waiting in the, in the backlog from India in that category and only about 3,000 people from India get off the, the backlog every year because of the per country limit and the, and the other quotas. Um, now, obviously, people aren't really going to wait 70 years. Um, and in reality, uh, people would, would leave eventually. Um, in some of the other categories and from some of the other countries, you're looking at six to 10 year waits uh, uh, and still a very long time uh, for someone who's looking uh, to get on with their career and, and have opportunity and, and have uh, things work out for their family. And these are people with a lot of other options, going back to their home country, going to other countries. And so if the U.S. wants to retain these people, it's very important to get these policies right. And what's one of the reasons we want to retain these people? Well, when a company goes on a college campus, they aren't saying, well, let's see if we can find some people who are born outside the United States. Um, but what happens is when they're looking at these technical fields, uh, typically, one-half to two-thirds of the graduate students uh, in, in many of these science and engineering fields are foreign nationals. So to ask employers, to ask U.S. companies to simply ignore a half to two-thirds of the most valuable resource that any of the companies have, uh, which, are their, which are their employees, um, basically tells them to not compete in the global economy. And the fact is they are going to compete. So they're either going to cede these employees to other, to other foreign companies, for example, to hire outside the United States, or they're going to hire them outside the United States if they're not allowed to have the, the workers work inside the United States. And when I say workers, really we're talking about professionals um, in science and engineering fields. Now, it's, but the interesting thing is it's not just, it's not just high technology. Uh, I recently repeat, uh, completed a study where I looked at the top seven cancer institutes in the United States, and found uh, by looking at about 1,500 biographies that in these seven cancer institutes, over 40% of the researchers, of the cancer researchers, are immigrants. Uh, you're looking at MD Anderson in Texas, over 60%. At Sloan Kettering in New York, over 56% uh, are immigrants. So we're getting benefits uh, from, from immigrants who are, who are deciding to make their careers here in ways that many of us uh, still don't, still haven't even explored. Um, you know, again, beyond just the, the high technology field. Now, uh, now, a popular uh, refrain that sometimes is heard on immigration these days, particularly on Capitol Hill, is, well, green cards, yes, we can have a consensus on, on more green cards, and there are good proposals on that, uh, such as to exempt people from uh, from the green card quotas if they have a master's degree or higher from a U.S. university in a, in a STEM field. Um, but uh, some people are also saying, well, but we need to restrict H-1B temporary visas and L-1 visas, which are used to transfer people 
uh, into the United States. And I think that would, be a, that would be a big mistake. First of all, typically almost everyone who is on a green card, uh, who in other words, who has permanent residence already in the United States, at one point were likely, was likely on an H-1B visa, or if they weren't, they were uh, maybe transferred in as, uh, from, from their uh, company from abroad. So to cut that, cut that, you know, basically cut the ladder out from really the main stepping stone to green cards would be a huge mistake. Um, even if you have this something where people think that you're going to get a green card directly coming in through the, um, through the current system, that relies on the U.S. Department of Labor and the U.S. Immigration Service to process in a very timely manner, uh, something that I don't know that a lot of employers want to put all their faith in. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of some of the problems that could come up in terms of restrictions for, for uh, on H-1B visas in particular. Uh, right now, a company is required to pay the higher of the prevailing or actual wage paid to other uh, U.S. workers when they hire someone on H-1B temporary visa. Uh, in addition, they often have to pay uh, about five to $6,000 in various legal and government fees on, on top of that. And they also have to deal with long delays. Uh, for example, the H-1B quota tends to run out every year. In fact, it's done so for the past 10 years. And in, most recently, it ran out in June uh, of last year, which meant that if you wanted to hire someone on an H-1B visa, you had to wait the equivalent of 15 months. In other words, October 1st, 2014, um, uh, or October 1st, 2013, before they could start working for the fiscal year uh, 2014. In other words, there's a lot of uh, um, a lot of reasons why you would think an employer, if they could hire someone, if they had someone readily available, they would cho choose to hire that person uh, instead of having to go through some of these long waits and, and some of these additional these additional costs. Now, Senator Grassley um, just introduced a, a bill, which I think is useful because it gives an indication of the types of restrictions that could be proposed uh, and is likely are likely to be proposed. Uh, in any sort of immigration bill that, that's going to move through the Senate possibly in, in, the, in the coming weeks or months. Uh, I'll give you two examples of some of, the th of some of the provisions that would be very problematic for employers. One of them would uh, have a requirement that if you wanted to have a, a, an H-1B uh, or an L-1 uh, visa holder work at any site other than your own employer site, uh, any customer site, that you would actually have to first get permission from the Secretary of Labor uh, or the, uh, or the uh, U.S. Immigration Service before they could go work for another site. I mean, that's a pretty startling provision in, in a global economy with, with labor mobility being one of the, the key facets. Um, the idea that you would have to get permission from the federal government before you could actually have an employee just go work uh, and service uh, a customer or client, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and I, I think it's something that, uh, that any company that, that has employees that move around, as typically many, many employers do, uh, would, 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 would find that extremely difficult uh, uh, to, to, have to, uh, to have to live with. Secondly, there's, another, there's a provision there on wages that uh, is potentially very problematic. Uh, as I point out, that currently you have to pay the higher the prevailing or actual wage. Uh, in addition, you have to pay various government fees uh, that goes for scholarships and, and, other, and, other, and other facets, uh, and inclu including the legal fees. 
but with Governor Grant, with Senator Grassley's bills, um, talks about is saying that, well, it's not just enough that you pay that. You actually have to pay a much higher wage for the foreign national uh, that would come in. For example, he talks about such things as they would be paid the, uh, the median wage uh, for the entire occupation in an area, uh, or that you would have to be paid at level two. In other words, if you're just out of graduate school, you would normally be paid at, at level one, which is called entry level, but, but the Labor Department really divides it very, say, like level one, level two, uh, in years of experience. Uh, so you would actually have to get paid at, at the level of a very experienced person. And just to put some numbers on this, before I came over, I was, I was working with an immigration attorney just to try to figure out after how this would work in practice. So for, right now, for an electrical engineer in Silicon Valley, uh, someone hired on H-1B would like, right now, would probably get paid about $74,000 um, for an initial wage. But under, uh, under Senator Grassley's proposal, uh, at minimum, they would, they would have to get paid $93,000, uh, in other words, $20,000 more. And if you actually look, based on the, on the, on the Labor Department's database, it appears in reality, uh, under the definition of the bill, uh, it's likely they might have to get paid as much as $111,000. This is for someone just coming out of, uh, out of graduate school. Uh, in other words, they basically have to get paid about 50% more uh, than another American with a comparable, with comparable experience. Uh, obviously, this is meant to be really a poison pill uh, to, to, to prevent any hiring of foreign nationals. Um, uh, I don't think that, that it, you know, I mean, it would be interesting uh, to have a policy, uh, and it would be interesting for senators to vote for a policy that requires foreigners to get paid much more than Americans. It would be an interesting 30-second uh, political campaign. Senator Smith voted to, you know, have foreigners get paid, you know, 50% more than, uh, you know, than their American counterparts. Uh, obviously, we're not, uh, you know, I think that if, if, if uh, people understood that this is how it would work, uh, it wouldn't, it would be tough to, to have it implemented. And I'll give you an example. Even if it wasn't, the, the wages weren't quite this, this, this stark indifference between uh, uh, between what a U.S. worker typically would get paid with the same experience and, and a foreign national. Um, what would happen is either you'd have a situation where the foreign national would have to get, be earning more than their U.S. counterpart uh, with the same experience, uh, which would be tough for a work, workplace uh, situation, or you'd have a situation where they would have to bump up the U.S. The US professionals to, to a higher wage to have equity, but then it becomes a problem is there's only so much compensation generally to go around in a company. So it would almost work like a, a, a minimum wage type situation where you'd probably end up with just fewer jobs uh, overall that a, that a company would be able to, to hire people. And then, and then the other possibility, of course, which happens with all these different types of restrictions, is that a company may just say, look, you know what, we're just gonna hire the people outside the United States and we're gonna move more capital and resources outside the United States, uh, and then they don't have to deal with any, any of this. And that's already happened quite a bit, uh, and really one of, the, one of the goals of a good immigration policy should be to allow uh, employers to hire people in the United States so we can create more jobs and innovation in the United States uh, rather than push them uh, unnecessarily to, to hire more people outside the United States and push more, push more jobs and capital outside the United States. 
So I think in conclusion, I think one of the real things to look, to look at uh, in, in any coming legis legislation is to what extent the green card provisions are going to be positive, and I think that they will, but to what extent the possible trade-off would be on H-1B or L-1 visas would be very negative. And I think, uh, I think people may be surprised that if the H-1B and L-1 visa uh, provisions become too onerous, that even if the green card provisions are good, that's, that some employers and employer groups <coughs> will simply say, well, you know, we don't really want it. Uh, we'd be better off with the status quo. And I think that's one of the things we're going to have to be looking at as, as any of these bills move forward. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is John Tyler. I'm the general counsel at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. And uh, I'm uh, privileged to be here and appreciate the invitation to be here and the opportunity to be here to talk with you about Kaufman's research in the area of entrepreneurship and in particular uh, immigrants and their roles with entrepreneurship. Uh, just very briefly on the Kaufman Foundation. The Kaufman Foundation's in Kansas City, Missouri. It was founded by an entrepreneur. And he asked as part of his legacy, not just asked, as part of donor intent, as part of his legacy, uh, that his foundation focus on entrepreneurship, education, and uh, with particular interest in things in Kansas City, but we operate uh, nationally. Our mission is to uh, foster economic independence through uh, promoting entrepreneurial success and educational achievement. And as I mentioned, my role here today is to talk about Kaufman's research, or nonpartisan research in the areas of uh, immigrant entrepreneurs. So to begin with, Kaufman research from a couple of years ago has shown that nearly, or actually over two-thirds of net new job creation comes from young firms, firms that are between one and five years old. So we need a pipeline of new firms, we need a pipeline of entrepreneurial activity, starting firms, uh, you know, keeping firms active and, and growing firms to create jobs. Other research, including Kaufman research, has also shown that immigrants, particularly high-skilled immigrants, are more likely to start companies, start and grow companies. And there's a couple of ways that that has been shown. One way is looking at the numbers relative to native-born uh, Americans. And Rob Fairley, uh, with Kaufman Foundation support and research, uh, demonstrated that there's a 30% more likelihood that an immigrant will found a company than a native-born uh, uh, American will found, start and grow a company. Uh, another way to look at it, so it's not just relative to native-born populations, but another way to look at it is when you look at the immigrant presence in the American population, that might lead to certain expectations about you know, how immigrants would perform in actually starting and growing companies. And immigrants are about 13% of the population based on the 2010 census data. So about 13% of the population. Immigrants over 25 who have a college degree are about 5% of the population. So as I go through these next uh, studies, keep in mind the 13% number and the 5% number. There are studies that show that immigrants have been a part of founding 24% of the, 
of technology and engineering companies between 2006 and 2012. Almost twice their presence in the overall population and just about five times their presence as far as having college degrees. Uh, another set of studies showed that immigrants were part of, or 25% of, uh, were founders of 25% of biotech companies in New England. 25% of venture-backed publicly traded companies. 40% of America's Fortune 500 companies have been founded by a first or second generation immigrant. Now keep in mind, they're 5% of the population over 25 with a college degree, 13% of the overall population. 47% of uh, a sampling of venture-backed privately held companies have had immigrant founders. This is according to the National Venture Capital Association. Uh, and a famous study uh, that was Kaufman supported and, and you know, part of our, our repertoire, 52% of Silicon Valley firms founded between 1995 and 2005 were founded by immigrant entrepreneurs. Again, compare that to their presence in the population as 5% with college degrees uh, and 13% of the overall population. So you're looking at a, a 10 times uh, difference as far as the disproportionate uh, impact. So uh, another way to then think of, so if we need more new companies, if immigrants have a tendency to start more new companies, what effect might visas and changes in visas have on immigrants coming to America, staying in America, and having the opportunity to start companies as distinguished from having the opportunity to study or, uh, or just to work for somebody else. And uh, my colleagues at Kaufman just a couple weeks ago released a, a study, a report that they did on the provisions of the startup visa that are contained in the Startup Act uh, 3.0. And copies of the study are outside uh, on the table there. Real quickly, the elements of the startup visa in this particular act would make 75,000 temporary visas available for current H-1B and F-1 uh, visa holders. It's a steady number of 75,000. Once 75,000 is reached, there are no more available until some of that 75,000 uh, drop out. They either graduate into the, uh, the permanent, the green card category or citizenship, or they don't meet the criteria, so they, they, uh, they fall out of, uh, of that system. The criteria are after one year, the business must have hired two full-time non-family members and have raised at least $100,000 in capital. After four years, the firm must have hired five full-time non-family members, and at that point, then they get to apply for permanent visa status. So Kaufman looked at the, the 75,000 number, um, made some assumptions, given, given information that we've gotten from census and information that, that from studies that we've done. When you look at the survival rates of firms, about 44% of firms survive after five years. About 44% survive. The employment survival rate, though, is about 69% after five years. So if you factor those numbers in, as, as my colleagues have done and, uh, you know, back at Kaufman, the research and policy area, you can come up with some presumptions and you can build some analysis around 
of those 75,000 uh, visas and assuming that they're, they're all met, that they're all full, and what does that mean by way of uh, firm survival and job survival after four years and then even projecting out into uh, 10 years with, uh, with new firms coming in and keeping the survival rates at four years. My colleagues ran three scenarios. One is how many jobs would be created over 10 years with just fulfilling the statutory minimum of five, uh, hi having hired five people. And that analysis showed that there would be just under 500,000 jobs created uh, by those immigrants. Another analysis they did looked at, okay, what if, what if you look at the average employment uh, of firms in the United States? And that number's not five, that number is 9.18. Uh, employees per firm for firms that are four years old. So an average of, four, of about nine employees for firms that are four years old. So if you extrapolate those numbers, uh, you get just under 900,000 jobs uh, after 10 years. So statutory minimum uh, under the bill would be 500,000. If you look at just the average data, it's about 900,000. But what if you also factor in additional conf uh, uh, Kauffman Foundation research that shows that specifically technology and engineering firms have a tendency to average 21 employees per firm. And since the, the, uh, the startup visa is available to H-1Bs, uh, who are more inclined to be, uh, to be starting engineering firms, technology firms, and STEM disciplines, uh, you know, F-1 uh, students who could also be in there. But if you look at, uh, if you just assume that half of the 75,000 were H-1Bs that started technology and engineering firms, the number now gets to 1.6 million jobs that, uh, that, that the, the projections would suggest. So the statutory minimum would be 500,000 new jobs. Uh, the average employment of, over uh, four years is uh, about 900,000 jobs. If you consider that many of these companies and the presumptions in my colleagues' research is that half of the companies are technology and engineering companies, they would start one point, or they would provide 1.6 million jobs. And these numbers are likely conservative because it assumes no growth. It assumes that there is not a Google uh, among, you know, among these companies. Uh, or it assumes average growth, I should say, given, uh, given the employee numbers. So it assumes average growth, and there are no gazelles. There are no high-growth companies that are part of it. It also, and when you consider that 40% of Fortune 500 companies have a first- or second-generation immigrant founder, some of these companies are likely to be gazelles and uh, high-growth companies. The research also doesn't account for the contributions to innovation, the creativity, the productivity uh, that can come from, uh, from this work. It also gives, we, we didn't, my colleagues didn't attempt to get into anything about the effect that these folks would have as taxpayers or as consumers. So this is just looking at job creation. 
And the study also does look at the impact or the projected impact on, uh, on GDP, uh, ranging from $70 billion at the statutory minimum to a $224 billion impact on GDP uh, based on half the firms being uh, uh, technology and engineering companies. So I appreciate the chance to, uh, to share some of Kaufman's research on this topic and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Alex Narasta. I'm the immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. I'm gonna talk briefly about immigration's impact on American wages, which I think is probably the most important thing in terms of the political decision making. How is immigration reform gonna affect American wages? That's something that most people are concerned about. I'm then gonna talk a little bit about the welfare state, which is something that, um, you know, as a libertarian myself, as a free marketeer, I'm very concerned about that impact. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about immigrants taking American jobs because that's something that uh, virtually no learned person really believes in. Uh, it's sort of a silly thing. It was something that was uh, popularized on South Park, as uh, Kelly said, as uh, they took our jobs. But it's plausible that there could be an effect on American wages of immigration, and I want to explore that by running through a few academic studies. Now, this piece of paper, it has this uh, graph on it. If you all want to take a look at that, I can sort of walk you through some of the data um, in case uh, you get a little misplaced. There's a lot of academic literature to draw upon, but I think the two most relevant studies um, are one by Borjas and Katz, and another one by Ottaviano and Perry. Now, Borjas and Katz, I think, is the most pessimistic study in the literature about the impact of immigration on U.S. wages. And I think it's important to include in there because it shows basically overall um, the impact on American wages of immigration is virtually zero. Um, it basically, over the long run, after American businesses and American capital and American investors are able to adjust to more labor, the impact is to raise, on average, all American-born wages by about one-tenth of one percent. Um, if you're making $40,000 a year, one-tenth of one percent really isn't that much money. It's about $40. So that's not much of an impact. Um, taken a look specifically, though, in Borjas and Katz's study, since more immigrants on average are lower skilled, about 32% uh, of them have less than a high school degree, they do compete with Americans who have less than a high school degree. We would expect that to be the result. And their study shows that about 4.5% wage decline for native-born Americans who compete with them over the last about 20 years. Now, that's the most pessimistic finding that's credible in the academic literature over about the last 30 years, is that immigrants lower the wages of Americans with less than a high school degree by about 4.5% after 30 million came over the last 20, 25-year period. That's the most pessimistic thing you're going to find. Now, another study I included in there is a more recent one by Ottaviano and Perry. Uh, what they did well, they took a look at uh, capital adjustments and other things in the economy, and they came to a very similar conclusion as Borjas and Katz. They found that above, uh, on average, American wa uh, wages were raised by about six-tenths of one percent by immigration, also a very small impact. It's about $240 a year if you're making $40,000. Uh, but interestingly, they found that every single group of Americans, by education, uh, their wages were increased. And one of the reasons why this was that a few other studies by um, Sparber and Perry 
and by uh, Ethan Lewis, which are in the uh, appendix of that handout of ours. Uh, it has the footnotes at the end. One of the reasons is language ability. Now, if you take a look at a restaurant, this sort of makes a lot of sense. If you hire somebody who is an immigrant who doesn't speak English very well, you're not going to put them in the front of the restaurant dealing with customers because most of your customers speak English. You're going to put them in the back. They're going to be the people who are going to be washing the dishes. They're going to be the cooks. They're going to be the janitors. But what that does is allow Americans with English language ability to fill those roles of dealing with customers, to be the waiters, to be the managers, to be the hostesses. And as a result of that, those jobs are higher paying. Jobs where you have to use more communication, especially in English, gain you higher compensation. So as a result of this, what we see over time is that immigrants with poor language ability don't compete with Americans. They compete with immigrants that came before them. That's the big result of this. Uh, new immigrants coming today from uh, countries where they don't speak very much English compete overwhelmingly with immigrants who came 5 or 10 or 15 years ago from countries where they didn't speak, uh, where they don't speak English very well. That's sort of the big result of a lot of this research um, and the immigrant impact on wages. Now, something else I want to talk about is this handout right here. This is a study that uh, the Cato Institute that I commissioned not long ago. It's uh, put together by two, uh, one professor and one lecturer at George Washington University who work on health policy. And what they decided to do was take a look at individual immigrant welfare use and means-tested programs. So they took a look at programs like uh, temporary aid to needy families, uh, Medicaid, CHIP, SSI, uh, and food stamps. And uh, what they did was they took a look at immigrant individuals and their children, because a lot of other studies look at what's called households. Now, if I were to study the immigrant uses of a household, I would include a lot of citizens in that household, a lot of native-born children, a lot of spouses who are American-born of immigrants. I would include that. But um, I would also, if I was studying net fiscal impact, take a look at the school, you know, the, the cost of sending a kid to public education. But when you take a look at a household, you cut it off once those kids reach the age of 18 or leave the household. So if you take a look at it this way, if you went to a public school and you lived in your household until the age of 18, we would count all those costs, right? But once you're out of the household and you pay taxes for 50 years or 40 years, we don't count that as a benefit. So you're basically jury-rigging the system to take a look at net fiscal impacts and basically saying that no matter how you uh, juggle it, children are basically going to be a net fiscal cost. So what I decided was to take away all that speculation. I'm not going to argue about the taxes that immigrants are going to pay in the future, you know, immigrants who are 10 or 15-year-olds now. I'm not going to argue about what they're going to pay in the future. I just want to take a look at what benefits do immigrant individuals get now. And on average, it's uh, fairly striking. Um, for all these welfare programs that we mentioned in the study, uh, immigrants uh, use fewer benefits than poor natives like themselves. So we compare poor immigrants to poor natives. And when they do get benefits, the benefits are less. In fact, it's so dramatically less that if we were to hypothetically, and I do this jokingly because I don't support this, but if we were to hypothetically replace every poor American with a poor immigrant, uh, the Medicaid uh, system, uh, the cost to that system of, uh, would be about 42% lower for non-citizens. And if we were to replace all native-born uh, poor children with um, non-native poor children, the cost for the CHIP system would be about 66% lower. Um, there are some small exceptions to this. There are some welfare programs that some 
uh, immigrants do use more of. But one thing to remember is that you have to be a legal immigrant in the United States, uh, green card, for five years before you're eligible for such, for most of these programs. And current unauthorized or illegal immigrants are not eligible unless they commit some sort of identity fraud or break some sort of other law like that, in which case they're not technically eligible, but they broke the rules to become eligible. And we can talk about some of those other programs as well. But right now, I want to open it up to questions and hear what you all have to say. Thank you. <laughs>